to the Week Ahead podcast. Uh, Chuck, how are you doing? Were you you didn't have any travel last week, did you? No, I didn't. Um, oh, awesome. Actually, Except that probably a little explains. Jaunt in Minnesota, right? Yeah, I just had one quick trip down to Minneapolis. That that explains why I feel so refreshed right now. Breezy, <laughs> yeah. What do you do when you're not traveling, Chuck? Um, well, I try to reintroduce myself to these little, uh, people that hang out with me when I'm here called children <laughs> and, uh, get caught up on my writing and, uh, actually get caught up on my sleep a little bit. And, um, you know, we're still, uh, picking up from the storm and will be for a long time. So got a little mm-hmm. yard work done and stuff like that. So yeah, uh, even in the snow. Wow. Okay. Um, this week you're going to Burlington, Vermont. Um, what's that event look like? I will be. It's kind of a last minute thing. It just came up and I had a gap in the schedule and said, yeah, we can, we can do that. Uh, I have not, uh, of all the states in the United States, there's only like three that I haven't been to. And Vermont uh, is one of them. <laughs> what are the others? So, yeah, so I'm excited to go to Vermont. I've heard nothing but good things. And there's a, a downtown group that is having kind of a, a half day uh, session and I'm going to be keynoting that. And then the afternoon having a meeting with some of the local officials. So okay. yeah, it's going to be a, it's going to be a really good time. I'm, I'm excited. And uh, you know, like I said, I've, I've heard nothing but good things. I think one of the presidential candidates is from Burlington, Vermont. You might be right about that. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the home of uh, Bernie Sanders. Although I'm, 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 uh, I'm not positive, but I'm pretty sure. But uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see the vibe when I get there. Yeah, and then the week after next will be, or the week after this one, we will be in Los Angeles, which I'm excited for. We will be for Meaning you and me, yes, and the rest of and the team, Jason yeah, and Yuri, yeah, yeah. I mean. One of the one of the kind of fun things about running an organization like this, uh, everybody works in these different locations, and we don't really have office expenses the way other places do. Um, our kind of rent budget is reallocated to getting us all together every now and then. And yeah, we looked at you know because we are literally in in different parts of the country, what is a, what is a time zone that would make the most sense for all of us? And yeah, the, the West coast, a little bit warmer. I know all of us are from Northern places. So uh, yeah, we, we said, let's that do that. Common. Yeah. And then we were able to line up a, a couple of engagements there too. So we're going to be doing some work and some fun and some, uh, you know, internal get together and, and talk about the next steps at the staff level. So yeah, that's, that's going to be a really good time. Yeah. And we're doing events in Los Angeles and Pasadena. So if you're in the area, definitely check that out on our website and sign up. I'll just go over some of our newest members that joined us this last week. Um, Inez Aguilera from Morello, Mexico. Whoa, cool. Wow. Really? Um, I, I think actually that's think that's our first X stands for. I don't know. Jason writes this up, so it could be. A wow. Typo, but... If that is the case, that's our first member from Mexico, which would be really incredible. I mean, I'm yeah, that would be, that would be really fantastic. And yeah, in terms of well, like laying out uh, my level of ignorance, I have also never been to Mexico, which I, I think is a, an absolute shame. Uh, one I would love to correct at some point in the near future. So 
Yeah, that would be a, a member from Mexico would be really fantastic. I will look into that. Um, okay, then we have Leah Baron Thomas from Santa Rosa, California, where we just did an event. We have yeah. Eric Berg from Seattle, Washington. Seth Erling from Minneapolis, Minnesota. <clears throat> David Levinson, also from Minneapolis, Minnesota. I think I recognize that name. Yes. Um, Shaida Libhart from Spring, Texas. David Martin from Petaluma, California. Jerry O'Brien from Calgary, Alberta. Oh, some more international. Good. Uh, Daniel O'Leary from, sorry, Danielle O'Leary from Santa Rosa, California. And John Perkins from Shreveport. Is that how you pronounce it? Louisiana. Yeah. Yes. Now, Danielle from uh, Santa Rosa is just a sweetheart. She was uh, a big part of our event there, helped us, uh, helped helped me, you know, explain some things about what was going on there and was just a a really huge help. So thank you to everybody who became a a member in the last week. It's just fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. Chuck, you wrote on Monday about Flint, Michigan, which is a topic that we've been thinking and discussing uh, for a while, obviously in the media, but also in strong towns internally. Do you want to talk about that post a little bit? Yeah, I would love to, you know, and and my writing for Monday mornings is always something that I I try to have working through my brain uh, come Friday afternoon. And I had this piece that I have been working on for like three or four weeks. It's on the backlog of, of pieces I want to write. And I thought, well, this Monday I'm going to write this piece and, uh, then over the weekend, I just kept getting bombarded with stuff about Flint, and I thought i i have mm-hmm. to I have to talk about this. I have a, a I have a weird um, obsession, and I'm 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 going to just lay this out there. This is one of these things that has never made much sense to me yet. It is kind of taken for granted the way we design and build water systems. Uh, and, and I don't want to get too like geeky engineering on everybody, but when you look at a typical water system, people think that like the pipe in front of their house and the hydrants and all this stuff, the water towers and is for you to drink water. And certainly that's like a happy byproduct of it. But the reality is, is the system is actually sized and built for fighting fires. When mm-hmm. engineers sit down and they design uh, these systems and they size the, the, the storage capacity and they size, it's all being sized for firefighting capacity. So you have, and I, I pointed this out on the blog, even if you live in like a very narrow lot, uh, you have enough water in terms of drinking water for hundreds of people just in the pipe in front of you. And there's many like multiple, uh, uh, you know, multiples of that in the water towers and, and the other storage places around the community. So you, you take a place like Flint, and really, we're talking about Flint because it's in the news, but this is a situation that is in like lots of cities around this country. Mm-hmm. Uh, St. Paul in Duluth here in Minnesota have had in the past lead problems that have shown up in, in the water supply. Uh, this is very common because back when these systems were built, it was very common to put lead uh, have lead pipes and do lead soldering. In fact, it was only in 1986 that lead as a soldering, uh, you know, to, to join copper pipes together was, uh, was gotten rid of at the, at the EPA at the federal level as part of the Clean Water Act. So, you know, you, you, you have this kind of systematic problem throughout the entire country. And when I step back and I look at our systems and I say, okay, 
we've made this huge investment, these massive investments in pipes that are in the ground that are largely for firefighting capacity. They still function fairly well for firefighting capacity. Uh, you may have some breaks every now and then. You may have things that need to be repaired. But, you know, th these systems are, are, like in Flint, I I'm sure it's working okay from a firefighting standpoint. But people can't drink the water. So the, the standard engineering approach says go dig up the whole entire thing and replace it with non-lead systems. And, of course, we'll find out in 50 years that there's something in PVC pipe that will slowly kill you in the mm -hmm. lifespan that people have then. And then, you know, we'll be right back to where we started from. My thought was instead of, you know, committing ourselves to this massive amount of money, quite frankly, money that is not there and will never be spent, why don't we do something a little more tactical? Uh, why don't we just build a system for drinking water? Why don't we just go out and say, okay, we have a neighborhood of people here. They need safe, clean water to drink and to bathe and to, you know, do those kind of things. How do we get them that? And when you actually take that approach, what you find is that you can build a much different system, a much smaller system, a much more tactical kind of system. And the way you would go about installing it and putting it in is much less invasive and thus much less costly. Now, someone remarked in the comment section that, you know, we've got this tried and true method, Chuck, and why would you go away from it? And it just seems well, like... That's always a great excuse for anything. Oh, yeah. No, I know. But he did make, a, a, a I think, what was a valid point was, well, the system that you're talking about is going to require uh, people to go out and maintain it and tweak it and, you know, basically like look after it because Imagine it's going to be a little bit more complicated and it's going to have a few more like localized moving parts. And it, while, I, you know, I, I don't want to say, yes, that's true uh, because this system, you know, a small system would not be overly complicated. Water systems are fairly simple kind of things. Nonetheless, I, I, I try to make the point like, hey, wouldn't we rather pay like one of our neighbors to, you know, a, a little bit of money to like maintain a, a, a pressure tank and a well and some filters, uh, you know, over time, something that would be within the capacity of pretty much any semi-competent person to learn. I mean, this is not like super high level of skill needed, mm -hmm. you know, or do we want to spend that money and many multiples of that money, you know, on pipe and concrete and other things from outside the community. And we, we're, we're so obsessed with making things big and grand and efficient. Uh, and we spend so much money trying to do that, uh, that oftentimes, and I think this is a good example, we spend way, way more to get a less inferior product and, and wind up with people who have no jobs but have clean water, where if we actually just spent a lot less money, not only would we have... Uh, you know, f just fine water, but we'd actually have maybe some employment opportunities for people along the way. It it's the difference between an economy that is wired to be massively efficient and one that is actually wired to, to help people. And I'm, mm -hmm. I'm for the latter. Yeah. So you would say that we should keep the existing pipes for firefighting purposes? Yeah. Or I, I mean, I don't see any reason. I mean, all. there's no reason to, to dig them up and you certainly need... Right. You certainly would like the firefighting capacity. I mean, mm -hmm. understand that when these systems were built, they were built in a day 
where people remembered bucket brigades, you know? Right. I mean, you're talking about a period of time where when one place would go, it would take entire cities down with it. And so the idea of having these water systems uh, were really essential to keeping people safe. Well, we have a completely different approach now. I mean, we have these huge trucks that we drive out there that have hundreds of gallons of water within them. We've got ways of putting out fires involving spray foam and, and others that, that are much more tactical. I'm not suggesting that we don't need the water system, uh, but I am suggesting that, uh, you know, that kind of a system uh, for firefighting uh, primarily uh, is massive overkill for most of the country, and there's no reason to, to put it back and recreate it. If there was a new town being built, would you say that they should implement some sort of fire uh, pipe system or just scratch that altogether? Well, let's look at, you know, let's let's ask ourselves what we're actually trying to build. And I'll go back to the stuff I've wrote in the past or written in the past about uh, the the balance between the public investment and the private investment. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a little city up the road from where I live from up the road from Brainerd called Niswa. And Niswa has this exact kind of system in the downtown. They, they do not have a municipal water system. They do not have large pipes and water towers and firefighting capacity. They have a fire department in their downtown and the fire department has pumper trucks and mm. they're, you know, this is Minnesota. So they're relatively close to a lake and they have access where they can go and well, suck water be- out of the lake if they need to. But their, all of their water needs throughout their entire downtown is served by this kind of low-pressure, low-burn kind of water system. They have, I think, one well. They might have two wells. Uh, they've got a series of pressure tanks. I, I want to say they have a filter. And everybody has this little pipes that run to their place. And they're, you know, they run them behind the stores and they run them you know, in all different places because it's pretty easy to, to do at that scale. Mm-hmm. Uh, to make it kind of fit and conform. If I'm building, you know, if I, if I have a small town with a few people, that's a very viable system to get people good drinking water. If mm-hmm. I'm building a place like a American suburb where everything is very spread out, uh, one home going down uh, is not really going to be helped all that much by having a fire hydrant there. And it's certainly one home catching on fire is not going to spread to other homes so you're right. you're really using like a sledgehammer to put out a problem that you know it, it maybe could use just a t- a tiny little mallet you know so yeah i I think that there are places where we could build smaller systems that would tactically make a lot more sense mm-hmm. This is reminding me of your issue that you've talked about s- several times with, I don't know, what is it technically the Brainerd airport or the Baxter airport where they're like trying to run the pipe out to yeah. create firefighting yeah. capacity or whatever. It does kind of, I think that's a good, that's probably a good example. Cause what it, what it illustrates is I think the natural, uh, orthodoxy, you know, that manifests in the staff, the bureaucracy and, and the professionals, the consultants and what have you to solving a problem at the, at the airport, we got a federal money to expand our airport. Uh, we did that. The fire marshal then came out and looked at the airport and said, well, 
you now have more area in, inside. You have a restaurant now and you have more seating area and stuff. So you need more firefighting capacity. Well, the reaction then of the staff, which is where this came from, is, wow, what a great opportunity to do something we've wanted to do for a while, which is extend city utilities, city water and sewer, a mile and a half out of town to the airport. When, you know, you could have solved the fire marshal's concern with a, a little bit bigger holding tank and maybe a, a, another well, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars worth of money. Instead, we're getting a $9 million project. Now, if you're the, if you're the staff, if you're the bureaucracy, and if you're the, you know, the people who have advocated for this project, you're looking at this as like an excuse or that the catalyst that allows you to, you know, do something you find to be good, which is running sewer water all over the place. Because when you do that, people can hook up and you get more users. So you get more revenue and, uh, you know, you can have more development on more properties. If you're a strong towns advocate, you look at it and you say, well, not only is this kind of just a waste of money, it's massive overkill, mm -hmm. but our problem in the city is not a lack of horizontal expansion. It's not a lack of miles of pipe and road that we have to maintain. It's that we have too much of this stuff and we're not making very good use of it. We're not very financially productive. So yeah, I, I think the standard orthodoxy uh, doesn't even go where I'm prompting it to go because you know, that, that, that's looked at as like a lesser solution. That's looked at as, you know, I, one person even emailed me and said, you know, you're, you're kind of advocating for like turning Flint into a third world country. And I'm like, you know, nothing of the sort, nothing of the sort. Yeah. I, I think, I think it's, it's more uh, demeaning now today, if we want to use that word or more insulting uh, to suggest that we put billions of dollars of burden on this poor city uh, with a system that fits what we feel comfortable doing, but what really doesn't, you know, which, which doesn't really address the needs that people there have. Mm -hmm. Well, and if you're going to draw a third world country comparison, I mean, having contaminated water is definitely something that a lot of third world countries struggle with. So it's clearly already in, in that dire of a situation. Right. Although, you know, when you, when you do look at third world, one of the easiest things to do from an engineering standpoint is to provide clean water. And there's a, 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 you know, and I say easy, I, there are places where water is scarce and there mm -hmm. it is, it is not easy, but from an engineering standpoint, uh, you know, the ability to extract water from the ground is pretty straightforward, pretty non, uh, you know, pretty non-mechanical in the, in the sense that you create these systems and, they're very easy to maintain. They have parts that are easily fixable and hackable. And, you know, there's a, a long history of very simple systems being able right. to serve Wells people quite well. Old. <laughs> yeah. I think this is such an important thing. And I, 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 I hesitate to, to jump into Flint too much because I, I'm trying to make a larger point about how we provide like high quality services in a country where there's this, you know, we are experiencing contraction, where cities are experiencing distress. Mm -hmm. Whenever you talk about Detroit or, or a place like Flint, uh, there's, there's a whole, you know, I had people, yeah, I know, how dare you, Chuck, you know, you sit there with nice water. And by the way, I have a well, what? <laughs> you know, uh, you know, yeah. how dare you, uh, you know, the, we, we should do whatever it takes to get the people of Flint fresh water. And I'm, you know, 
I, my, there's a part of me that just says, okay, yes, let's, let's do that. But mm-hmm. understand that it's not just Flint, right? Like it is the next city and the next city and the next city and the next city. This is a ubiquitous problem. And Flint is just like the weakest link in the chain. Mm-hmm. Let's try to solve this problem now. Or let's try to think through this problem now in a way that can not only help the people of Flint, but help every other city that is going to be struggling with this in the coming years. Yeah, and also preclude further problems like this from happening again by building a more resilient system. I'll go back to the city of Reamer that I, you know, the, the last great engineering project I did when I worked for the, uh, the engineering firm here in town. You know, they had a leaking pipe, 300 feet of pipe. And there was no way to solve that problem. They had a system that was literally too big for what their tax base was. There was no way to solve that problem uh, on their budget with their tax base. And so the only thing that we could do is, and what I did, you know, back in my engineering days, is I made them a a $2.6 million project that included expanding sewer and water and doubling their treatment facility and doing all kinds of things and managed to fix that little cracked pipe that was causing them all the problems. In order to fix their, you know, $300,000 problem, I gave them a $2.6 million project with enormous, you know, I took a system too big for them to maintain. And in order to uh, help them maintain it, I doubled the size of it for them. Mm. And that is, in my mind, not only crazy, but kind of immoral. You know, I mean, I, I, I look back on that and I say that was our system of which I was a player and a, par- a part of doing a huge injustice to, to, to good people. And I, I find it immoral. Yeah. Um, Chef, do you have any books that you've been reading lately? Oh, really quick? you know what? You, you haven't asked me that for a while. Um, yeah, you're right. <laughs> um, let me try to think off the top of my head. Cause I've actually been immersed in a couple of blogs lately, but uh, last oh, week we I finished a too. book on the Nat Turner rebellion, which is, uh, the, the largest slave rebellion in the South, uh, you know, before the civil war. And it, it was, um, it was recommended to me. Uh, I, I can't remember who recommended it to me, but I actually didn't like the book very much. There, there wasn't, uh, there, there, the, 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 probably the biggest insight that I got from it and this was kind of fascinating because this wouldn't have been what I had thought was after the rebellion was done and they basically had caught everybody who was involved in it, the wealthy slave owners who had survived. And there was a a bunch of them who didn't, I want to say there was like 80 people or so that were killed in part of this, you know, whole families. It was really horrible. Uh, The slave owners that uh, had survived kind of quashed the, the, well, at first, they, they got everybody who was non-slave owners, like, riled up to go out and stop the slave revolt. Mm-hmm. And then when they stopped it and they got everybody kind of back, uh, they tried to go the other way and say, let's not be, you know, let's not have retribution. Let's not hang all these people. Let's not, you know, do that because, again, they're property at this point. And so, you know, if you actually do that, it will destroy our property. And it was it was a fascinating you you get a sense of the incoherence of what life had to have been like in that system mm. to try to justify 
you know, this kind of despotic, this not kind of, this, this very despotic relationship that, uh, that took place. And just like the mental gymnastics. I guess that was my big takeaway, but you could have got that in the introduction. So it wasn't that great of a book. Um, okay. Yeah. Uh, I, I also finished a book and I, I can't remember. Hang on. I'm going to, I'm just going to slide back and grab my phone, which has the name of all right, I'm back. Um, I read a book, and this is going to sound like really bad, but I, I I read a book called Let me see what Black Earth, and it was a it's about the the Holocaust um, as history and warning is the subtitle. The Holocaust as history and warning, hmm. and I, I I came across this book at the towards the end of last year, and it was really about the time I wrote the piece uh, on I'm not afraid about the uh, the immigrant crisis, mm-hmm. and and it, it 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 was a book who that went through not only the stages of the Holocaust, which I've I've read books about that before, but this one had an eye toward uh, how people were co opted to participate, and. Then the last chapter was all about, you know, how do we prevent this from happening again? Mm -hmm. And the author's main conclusion, which really kind of went counter to what I maybe had had thought going in, was that bureaucracies, basically government, uh, you know, civil civil society, is how you prevent this. And I'll, I'll give you the I'll give you the two kind of startling stats. If you were a Jew living in Germany uh, at the beginning of World War II, you were more likely to survive the Holocaust than if you were a Jew living in, say, Poland uh, or Ukraine. And the reason is because in Poland and Ukraine, you had not only the Soviets come in and, and destroy your government, but then you had the Germans come in and destroy whatever was left of your government and in those two, you know, it basically in the lack of any type of civil system, it was very easy to round up people and there was no like resistance to it. But if you were in Germany where there was bureaucracy and forms and processes and, 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 you know, all that kind of stuff, uh, it was harder to do this because people had, even Jews in, in Germany had a certain level of rights. They talked about Denmark, and Denmark uh, in the 1930s banned any more Jews from moving to Denmark. But if you were a Jew within Denmark at the beginning of the World War II, you, I, I want to say the survival rate was like 90%. It was very, very high. And it was very high because mm-hmm. the, the Danish bureaucracy just kind of fought it. Um, there was a story in the book where the... Uh, there was one day where the SS uh, had indicated that uh, all the Jews were to be brought, you know, show up at this place and we're going to transport you to some happy island, which, you know, that was the story they told them. Uh, and it wound up then that whoever the captain of the fleet was uh, knew this was coming and sent the fleet out for maintenance on that day. So on that day, there were no boats to transport anybody anywhere. Now, hmm. how do you, you know, you take that kind of a story and you impose it in a bunch of different ways and you can see how like a well-functioning civil service, a well-functioning bureaucracy can stymie uh, evil. And that was kind of the author's point and it was well taken. I mean, I, I appreciated it and uh, I, I learned a lot from the book. 
But wait, you're saying that in Germany, the system protected Jews, but the system was Nazism. No. The, the, okay. What I'm saying is that if you study like how Hitler came to power, he came to power mm -hmm. through... Uh, God, well, what you could argue was constitutional means, you know, he, right. um, you know, he, they had a, a system of, of chancelleries and he was appointed and then basically through, uh, elections was able to kind of change the system right. so that he retained power. Um, th this is when you, when you do that, basically the, the Nazi party was in the process of destroying the German state, uh, reworking it to their ends. But mm -hmm. that was a process that was under being undertaken throughout the 1930s and then throughout World War II. Uh, it didn't happen overnight and it actually wasn't complete. You know, you, you, you see things like the movie Valkyrie, right? Mm -hmm. With Tom Cruise a few years ago. Mm -hmm. And there are these groups meeting that clearly are in opposition to the Nazis. Right. And there are these people who are outspoken, uh, who are in their parliament or what have you, who disagree with the policy of the Nazis. And, and it kind of runs counter to what we are led to believe in our common, like, folk nature, because we believe, you know, Hitler obviously is the embodiment of evil, the Nazis are the embodiment of evil, and they, they just, you know, snuffed out all opposition. But the, the kind of messy truth is that this was a, a work in progress. They hadn't done that completely. And there were the ability uh, of some in the German system to resist. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not saying it was widespread and I'm not saying that it was effective because if you were a Jew in Germany in 1940, you likely were killed. Uh, mm -hmm. But the, the, your chance of survival was far greater than it was in Poland where the government didn't exist at all. There was no government. There was no bureaucracy. There was nothing. There was just chaos and anarchy. And there was no one to stop the Eisensgruppen, the, the, you know, the, the special forces designed to exterminate Jews from doing their work. Okay. And I see what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's a, it was, it was a shocking kind of uh, way to frame it for me, but it was, it was really powerful too. I mean, I, I, I learned a lot from the book. I, I thought it was a well worth my time. Cool. And I actually have relatives who participated in the resistance movement. That is Where a at? story for another time, but in Germany. Oh, really? Um, and also who were Jews who died. But yeah. that is my family history. Yeah. Um, cool. Okay. Anything else that we should add for the week? Next week we have uh, another sort of campaign focus where we'll be talking about housing uh, specifically federal housing policy. So there was, a, there was a, yeah, there's a fantastic report that I was made aware of in December. And of course in December, we're kind of on a different plane in terms of programming. And so as the year started, we kind of came back to this and, and have this opportunity now to focus on it and present some really important findings. And I, I know the people who authored the report and who have been out kind of promoting it in different places feel this sense of urgency because the changes that they want to see come about are really quite simple and could happen, you know, at, at, at the executive level with, I think, very little resistance if people just were willing to do it and they would have a, a huge impact 
on our ability to build strong towns and, and great places. So yeah, I'm, I'm excited to highlight this and to share this message with a lot of people. Yeah. And this topic connects to a lot of things that we talk about as strong towns, especially small scale developer issues, um, and walkability. Um, yeah, a lot of things that we hear about. So Absolutely. look forward to that next week. Uh, all right, everyone take care and have a great week. Oh, 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 oh,